0: amen Amen. father again we thank you for the glories of the cross father we thank you that you have shown us that in this world each man approaches you on one of two bases either their own righteousness or the righteousness of christ and father we thank you We thank you so much that you have shown us the truth that only those who have received your Son can approach the throne and be declared righteous. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom about the Gospel. Even as believers, help us to understand how the Gospel continues to work in our lives, continues to transform our lives to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would Help us to do as we just sang, that we would be driven deeper into the gospel. Father, again, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for how you have been so gracious towards us. Help us to be people that want to quickly speak about your truth to others, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is truly the power of God unto salvation, to righteousness. Lord, help us be quick to share. Guide our thoughts now. We ask that you would keep us focused on the Word so that it would instruct us and convict us and change us and grow us for the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking a little bit at last week's text, and then going to verse 9, so verses 3 to 9. Last week we looked at uh, an overview of this passage, and we saw that in verse 12, Paul says, I press on, I lay hold of, of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, I've been laid hold of. I'm pursuing Christ because Christ pursued me. Are you pursuing Christ because he pursued you first? Not only that, but because he has pursued us, because he has come into our lives, we're going through a complete transformation of outlook and values and motivations. We see also in verse uh, 7... We are willing to count all things for loss. Second part, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I'm even willing to sacrifice and suffer to walk with Christ. I trust that you are as well. So again, knowing Christ is above all. I mean, he says, I'm willing to count everything else I had done in my life. Again, going back to verses 3 to 6. And count them, last part of verse 8, as rubbish, dung. The idea is I'm pursuing Christ, and that's all that matters. We turn this week, though, to looking at righteousness, and the question is, how do we stand before Christ or before God, a holy God? And obviously, it's Jesus Christ. But Paul actually breaks it down. One of the greatest um, summaries of the gospel is actually verse nine, and that's what we'll primarily be looking at today. But how are you standing before? a holy God, your righteousness, or in Christ Jesus. In the city of Basel, Switzerland, uh, each year there is a carnival that takes place at the beginning of Lent. It is much like our Mardi Gras, except for the fact that Basel is a Protestant city, and and so it holds its carnival after Lent begins instead of before. So that's the only difference. Basil's Carnival is always a wild affair with debauchery that associates that one associates with the carnival season. Everyone knows what's going on, even though they may not know exactly who is doing it, because there they wear masks. The Salvation Army has done a number, uh, an interesting thing over the years as it pertains to this particular time of year. They'll put up big posters, big billboards. And I'm not going to say the the, the the German words, but it means this, God sees behind your mass. God sees behind your mass. You're, you're, you, you think you are doing it and no one knows, God sees. Why? Because people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And as we approach the idea of righteousness, how does a man... How does a woman stand before a holy God? Or, as Job said, how can a man be righteous before God? Again, righteousness deals with the question of how can anyone stand in the presence of God? How can anyone stand in God's presence? How is anyone going to stand face to face before God's judgment? That's that's the question. How can we conform to God's holy law and then be blameless? I mean, that's a good question, right? How can you stand before a holy God? How can, we do, how can we do in order to meet the demands of God's justice? How can we stand there and meet his, his demands? Because again, God sees behind the mass. See, people, people have created all kinds of religions. We could study world religions. We could even study the religions within Christianity that really are not true Christianity. That are works-based, but the idea is this, all these works-based religions, every religion except for, except for Christianity, is all based on works, standing before God, hoping to stand before God and be pleasing to Him based on their own works. And yet God sees behind the mass. God sees your heart. God sees the sinfulness of your heart. That's why Paul boasted and gloried in the cross, like in Corinthians one thirty, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us, now catch this, in Christ became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He says, yes, we stand before a holy God, but we stand before him in Christ. Or like in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became our sin bearer, our substitute, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, in him. The whole point of imputation is he gave us his righteousness, but we are placed in the body of Christ. We're standing in Christ. That's, that's why I can stand righteous before God. That's why you can. So as we look at this passage, again, the main point of the passage is Paul is going to show us what he used to be confident in, in the flesh, and then having had the Damascus experience on the road and seeing who Christ is and being saved, what he now places his confidence in. So confidence in the flesh, confidence in man's works versus confidence in what God has done. That's really the whole, pa- or the whole message today. We have two kinds of righteousness. If you want to start filling in, we have two, there's two kinds of righteousness. And I've just mentioned them again. The first one is a righteousness that comes from man. Righteousness that comes from man. And you see that again in verses 3 to 6. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what we can produce for God. And then he gives a lengthy explanation of what he used to have confidence in. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I mean, give me your best guy and I'll show you what I used to do. Is what he's saying. Circumcised the eighth day. By the way, if you break this down, he's given both inherited and earned ways of righteousness. In other words, he said, I inherited the fact that I was circumcised the eighth day. My parents knew. In other words, I I started out the race of obeying the law right from the start. He's going to say blameless. Of the stock of Israel. So circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now think about Benjamin. Remember when they had the split, ten tribes north, you know, went away to the Assyrians, the two that were remaining? One of the two was Benjamin. He mentions that, I think, because he's proud. He's saying, listen, at one time, you know, it was the Benjamites, there was the Benjamin tribe that stayed faithful to the Davidic line. Yeah, the rest of them went off to their own, but we stayed with Judah. So he says, I'm a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Again, concerning the law, because I thought the law would bring me and make me righteous before God, as far as the law of Pharisee. I know we, we pile on the Pharisees often, but think about this. The Pharisees were the most faithful to the law that the Jews had known. The Pharisees were like the pastors of today, but yet the liberal pastors. They might look real good. They were like, you know, really in the system. They were really trying to follow the law. So he mentions I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I mean passion, passion for God, persecuting the church. Now, we might say, well, that doesn't seem like a, you know, like a commendation. But to a Jewish person who thought the Christians were, um, were aberrant, Outside the fold to persecute meant that that was a good thing. So he said, you know, persecuting the church concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Now again, he goes right to the law, i.e., Ten Commandments and everything that comes out of that. He says, blameless. That's what he means by having confidence. By the way, that's world religions. That's saying, man, I, I do everything that my religion says I must be okay before God. But he says, I, I don't have any confidence in the flesh. By the way, if you, if you want a, a bigger summary, you know, um, if you just go over Romans chapter 1, he, uh, Paul to the Romans breaks down actually three different, I believe, group, uh, groups of people. The first person you see is like a humanist. In verse 18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. From there you can see where he's going with it. He's not talking about a religious person, he's not talking about a Jew, he's talking about a person that basically says this, I make my own rules and standards. I'm, and I make my own rules, and when I, when I come before God, he's gonna accept it. That's what he's answering in verses, uh, 18 to 32. He will accept it, but notice what has happened to this person who thinks he can make his own rules. In other words, the standards of living that I that I have, that I recognize, those are the ones that I believe God is going to uh, have for me. I make my own rules, He'll be happy with it. But look at verse 21, second part. But But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you think we live in a darkened nation? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They even worship the creation versus the Creator. You know, he's describing, I believe, you can say the atheist, the humanist, the Gentile, (coughs) however you want to say it, the man who says, I'll make my own standard and God will have to live with it. (laughs) Look at what he does though. What does God do? Verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 26, God gave them over to vile passions. God, Verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. Now, God will judge that person who thinks they can make their own righteousness and determine their own righteousness. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, I think he turns and looks at a moralist, someone who says? But okay, I will. I, I'm going to lead an an ethically excellent life. And you know these type of people. In fact, it's a person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. But you might make this statement of them. But I'll tell you what, they they live a better life than a lot of Christians I know. You know anybody like that? Surely God would not judge them. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. What he's getting at is you've got this, this, uh, this standard, but it's a good standard. But somehow thinking that God is not going to judge, because it is a good standard by human estimation. If you go to verse 14, and we don't have time to cover all the nuances, but look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, see again, this immoralist don't have the law, the, the, um, God's law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. It's there, it's in the conscience. Uh, their conscience also bearing witness in between, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. He says in verse 11, I should have said that is there is no partiality with God. The idea is this, you may not be a pagan who has pagan standards, you may be a moralist who have high standards, but God is not partial. And His law is even written in your heart, even though you might reject it, that person might reject it, well I don't want to go God's way, but it's still in the conscience. And it says, no, I, I I'm not... It condemns, okay, as far as when you do sin, it condemns. That's the idea. So you have a, a Gentile or the person that's just a pagan. And then chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, is the moralist, the religious moralist, whether Jew or Gentile. Look at verse 17. Now it takes the group that they would have certainly thought they were righteous before God. And that's the Jew, verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, and it goes on and on and on. The idea is, well, certainly a Jew, you know, one who has been given the law, certainly he can stand before God righteous. Let's just for time skip down to verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. See, Paul said, but wait a second. When we're talking about a Jew, we're not talking one outwardly. We're not talking just about circumcision physically. We're saying of the heart. It has to go beyond the external. Really, this whole passage is summarized in chapter 3, verse 9, where it says this, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jew and Greeks that they are all under sin. See, he's laid down this argument. He's looked at groups of people. What about the heathen? What about the Gentile? What about the pagan? What about the moralists? What about the Jew who's been given the law? Can any of them stand righteous before God? Can any of their works righteousness avail before the holiness of God? And he says, no, they're all under sin. So what Romans 1, 2, and 3 has talked about is really summarized over here in Philippians chapter 3. Okay? I just want you to see the fuller picture. See, many would like to think of righteousness as a scale. You know, you have the real the people on the low end of the scale that are the murderers and the thieves... And then the other side of the scale, you have those who have personal righteousness. And somehow the scale tips. And hopefully your scale tips in the way that pleases God. And obviously that is not correct. In fact, verse 7 says, But what things were gained to me, all the things that I thought were my assets, these I have counted lost for Christ. So what Paul thought were his assets growing up, while he was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless before the law, what he thought were assets now became his liabilities. He says, I've given it all up for dung. I, all those things that I thought I was somehow pleasing God with, I now see that they're just like dung. But the only asset that he, he wanted was to be found in Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ, Christ alone—that's all that I'm standing on. Christ, or Paul would say this: I've given up everything, and I'm standing in Christ. You know, accumulation of human righteousness is a is a bit like playing Monopoly. Now, think about that. I was—I asked my wife, "Do we have a Monopoly game anymore?" I guess it's it's still in hard copy. We don't—I know it'll probably come on an internet version someday. Xbox. But for right now, we have Monopoly money still. Now, wouldn't it be crazy... By the way, I like playing... I don't really like playing Monopoly. I shouldn't say that. It's too long. Give me a game that's quicker. That way, if I'm losing, I can start over again. No, No, it's enjoyable to play for some. But only a fool would take this money and go to Walmart. Now, for, uh, for, um, for Christmas, we bought a... Uh, a bigger item, a new television set. And, um, you know, it costs quite a bit, but it would have been really foolish. Let's say we went down to the Walmart in Hornell and, and said, Well, we'd like to buy it. We picked it up, put it in the, you know, cart with other stuff, and they, you know, rang it up, and Mr., you know, you owe us X number of dollars. You know, it was quite a few hundred dollars. And, uh, oh, okay, how much did you say? Okay, you know, x number plus two, ever since. Okay, here, let me, uh, and I, I took this out and I said, no, wait, this is $500. And, um, you yeah, know, there's another, you know, 100 and, and, how much did you say, 100? I it was 25, 27. And I just paid it like that. By the way, they would look at you, first of all, and say you're stupid. <laughs> yeah. But the but then, but let's say I pushed the issue. No, I want this TV. You how much did you say? One thousand, what? Two hundred and what? No, this is it. Well, you would say no, no, you're you're not thinking. You're not thinking. This is play money. Right? You need the real money. You need real It's losing a lot of value. You need this. See, it's a different type of currency. This is not the currency, it's this currency you need. Well, again, it's the same in the spiritual realm. When it comes to righteousness, all the world's religion is like monopoly money. And they wanna, they wanna ha- Well, no. See, I, I go to church, and and I'm a pretty good person, and uh, you know, Lord's certainly going to accept this because you know I, I've been a, I've been a leader in that church, an elder, a deacon for how many? And uh, and you, oh, this is a big one. This is big. I've been faithful to my wife all these many years, and we put all this. Well, we don't, but the world does, and their world religions. And somehow, it's like supposed to impress God. That's what that's what Paul means by all this dung. Okay, I want you to get the picture. No, it's 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 a different currency, it's a different righteousness that he, that God is talking about. Everything that man can do is not acceptable why? Why? Because because our even our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah says. So again, God cannot be satisfied with any righteousness that comes from a human being because it's it's, it's the wrong righteousness. It's already been tainted. But now, with that thought, look at verse 7. And this is the biggest word, I think, of all Philippians. But, <laughs> transition, God comes into the picture. What things were gained to me, these I count loss for Christ. And indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Because he understood that there was no benefit in everything he had done. No benefit. He goes on. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And that's really where it's at. Sometimes people try to put faith and works together. Well, yeah, I know that we need faith. Well, they'd say, I need faith, but can I just add a little bit of my own righteousness in? You know? Surely God would be pleased with my faithfulness at church. No, we stand in Christ and Christ alone, or you don't stand before God righteous. So the question is this, have you exchanged your assets for Christ? You know, we're starting a new year. Last last week was the first of the year, but have you truly exchanged your assets, the things that you thought pleased God, that brought you to God? And you see that as no. All that is like dung, refuse, excrement. It stinks before God, if I ever thought that that somehow pleased him. And you see that it's only by the sacrifice, the substitution of Christ on the cross that can please God. And you have come to to Christ, you've come to God through Christ. And you've put your faith and trust in what he has done on the cross. And you've received him, and you've trusted him, that I might gain Christ. Have you done that? Because... I'm always concerned that people can come to church and they hear about the good works because we do talk about growing in Christ. But remember the good works are only good. By the way, we don't present like monopoly money before God as before God, as I am in Christ, I can produce works through Christ's power, through his strength, through the Spirit of God that is pleasing to the Father. But it's all because of Christ. Have you exchanged your assets for Christ? Number two, the righteousness that God accepts, again, is found in verse 9. This is a great summary of the gospel. And let me just break it down into four parts. First of all, it is Christ. It is Christ's righteousness that he's talking about. The last part of verse 8 says, And count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. In. you You might want to circle in. Because in Him, in Christ, is that mystical union with Him. It's the fact that He's saying, I belong to Him. Remember, Corinthians says, I've been bought with a price. I've been, I belong to Him so that everything that is true of Jesus Christ becomes true of me. I.e., His righteousness becomes my righteousness. By the way, that is so reassuring. We're going to try to get deeper into the gospel today. Okay? I want you to get the gospel. Whatever is true of Christ, if you're in Christ, is true of you. As far as before, standing before God. Therefore, as a sinner, I'm guiltless. Having fulfilled the entire law. Why? Why would you say that? Because Christ fulfilled the entire law. He, worked, he walked a perfect life actively. He died a perfect death on the cross. He fulfilled the entire law. I'm in Christ. I have fulfilled the entire law as, as God looks at me. Be careful. I've been declared righteous. I haven't yet been made righteous. Sometimes we say, well, we've been made righteous. Well, in the sense of how God looks at us, but it's be, we've been declared righteous. Someday we'll be glorified and the process will be completed. That's imputation that 's that verse again, second Corinthians five he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, and that becoming is so far we 've been declared that 's justified, and we 've becoming more and more righteous that 's sanctified, and ultimately we'll be finished the process will be finished that 's glorified. so again, the righteousness of Christ has been been imputed to me as a sinner. And I've been declared righteous. And if you've received Christ, you've been declared righteous before God. But it's all found in him, in Christ. That's the key, in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness. B, it is not merited by works performed by man. The second part of verse 9, not having my own righteousness, which is from, the word is act out of, out of the law. So it's not merited by works performed by man. Remember in Philippians 3, he's just got done talking about all the things he considers dung. And now he's saying, but I'll tell you where the righteousness is found. It's found in Christ. It's not merited by man. It's not derived from the law. So again, righteous. We are righteous not by human effort. Not by diligence and accomplishment of the Old Testament law. We're, we're found in Christ. what the Jews could not pull off because of their sinfulness. And it was never, it was only, by the way, the law was only ever to drive us to Christ. Galatians says that. But Jesus Christ came to this earth and accomplished for us. That's why it's so wonderful to be able to sing to him, isn't it? I'll tell you, today's worship, <laughs> that it was very good. I don't mean you're singing. I mean, no, that was good. But I mean those, the, the concepts. And we need to be driven deeper into the, the cross of Christ and understanding all that that means for us. We need to glory in the cross. Why? Because we've all sinned. We're all under God's condemnation. And yet Christ came and rescued us. He saved us not by works of righteousness, Titus says, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, right? So again, it's not merited by the works performed by man. Number three, see, it is appropriated by faith. The last uh, third part of nine, but that which is through faith in Christ. Okay, see, we understand that the righteousness came from God. It's in Christ. We understand that it's uh, not by man. But then you have to ask, well, but how do I get it then? Well, he says faith. Through faith in Christ. Faith is the appropriating agent. It's the conduit. I like to think of it as the conduit. How do I get the righteousness of Christ? How do I receive it? It's, it's through faith. Faith is the appropriating agent, the conduit. The hand extended to receive God's free gift. That's what faith is. It's the hand that reaches out. And says, yes, I, am, I understand the gospel, I accept the gospel, I want the gospel. I want what Christ has done on, for me on the cross. Uh, through the years, theologians have tried to explain faith, and, and they put it in three parts. And I, I like the three parts because it gives you a better understanding. Because some people say, well, faith is just, you know, just intellectual assent," Or faith is something I believe in, even though it may not be true, I'm just going to believe it, therefore it's it's true. I've heard that almost, like, you know, illustrated that way. But what is faith? There's three 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 real components of faith. First of all is knowledge. That's the starting point. It is impossible to believe in a thing unless we know what it is we are believing in. <laughs> So, this is the point. Faith is, is based on facts. Do we believe that? It is based on facts. It's not like this, well, I believe it, therefore it's true. No, no, it's based on facts. It's objective truth. It's not subjective truth. Christ has died for sinners. It was completed on the cross. It is finished. That's objective fact. But the second part of faith is a heart response. Spurgeon used to call it belief. Faith is not merely intellectual assent to certain facts or truths. It is also a response to such knowledge. Because again, the heart has to be moved. The heart is the real you, the inner you, that moves towards what is being proclaimed. So it's not just that Christ died for sinners. Christ has died for my sin. (laughs) And if I receive Christ personally, I can be forgiven. You get the, there's a difference between just knowledge and now there's heart response. And the third one, the third element, that's why I want you, the third aspect, you have objective faith, you have a heart response that starts to move towards that truth, but then the third is a commitment to that truth. It means casting yourself upon Christ, resting on His promises, and accepting His finished work on your behalf. I believe. I trust. I receive. I. And in other words, I fully trust in. I've told this story a few times. It's like a, a, a man dating a girl. I remember the first... Time I saw my wife walking across the parking lot of Practical, and whoo! <laughs> Except I knew that I could never have her, so I, I really said, you know, I said I, I told someone I'd never marry her because I just felt like she was way beyond me. Okay, um, <laughs> but I got to know Sola. I remember one time I, I uh, we went home because her good friend. And where I lived, we were in the same town, Don Morrison. And, um, and so we had to sit in the back. It wasn't in the back of the... You were in the front. And Don was in the back. Because she didn't want anything to me, do with me. I think she thought I was kind of quirky, you know. Like, he's odd. Did you think I was odd? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's saying that seven kids later. Um, but the thing about... All right. A man, I got to know her. Then all of a sudden one day, about a year into the whole process of going to school, my heart started to move in her direction. Probably my heart moved before her heart moved. But it wasn't until June 4th, 83, I said, I do. Okay, now, when it comes to Christ and his truth, you see the truth. You have the knowledge. You can learn about a girl. You can even say, boy, she I bet you she'd make a great wife heart response and yes, boy, I'd really like to know her better. But until you stand before the altar and say in a commitment, I do, it's not complete, right? Christ, I know about Him. My heart is moved, but there are people that have had their heart moved towards Christ and say, you know, I really believe that's what I need. I need Christ. But I don't want to do it right now. But until you say, yes, I believe. I believe that for me. I receive Him. You know, personal commitment. Knowledge, heart response, commitment. See, faith is believing something is true. That's knowledge on the basis of the evidence. I believe the evidence. That's a heart response. And then acting on it. You have to act on it. I mean, what if right now, I said to one of you young kids, listen, if you just come up here, listen, this is a $5 bill. This is a $5 bill. That's fact. And actually this five dollar bill, one of them, is actually can pay for some things at Walmart or whatever. You say, you I agree with that. Okay, that's that's objective fact. And I can see how that could help me. But I'd have to say, listen, would you be willing to come up here and actually receive it? Would you be willing to receive it? Because the Bible says this that salvation, for by grace are you saved what? Through Faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift. There's that receiving. There's that commitment. There's that reaching out. By the way, would any of you kids like one of these? Come here, Micah. He was the quickest. He was right there. Yeah. Now, the thing is, you can have works, man's righteousness, or you can have, well I'm not gonna say God's righteousness, but the point is, this. you can have the fake thing, or the real thing. Which one would you like to have? Real thing. Okay, go ahead. Take it home, my friend. <laughs> Lee Ryan was saying, man, I could have had that, it was right in the front. <laughs> Let's see what else I have for Charlie. I have a 20. (laughs) The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. By the way, if I took that back from Micah now, you say, well, that's not a real gift. That's his. That is his. That is yours. See, the point is, is that's what a gift is. But by the way, you could have looked at it. You could have known it's there. You could have seen a lot, but maybe if you don't receive it. When it comes to the gift of God, you have to receive it, just like you receive any gift. And it's not that God's going to take it away. By the way, at this point in the... Oh, let's look at the last one. It comes from God, last part of verse 9. The righteousness which comes is from God by faith. It's authored by God. Romans says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, Jew first and also the Greek. It's interesting, that word, that phrase, power of God, it's used nowhere else in Scripture except in Corinthians. As far as the gospel, it's used twice in Scripture referring to the gospel, both in Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's also used one other place when it talks about the power of The power of God. It's Christ, the power of God in Corinthians 1. Only two places, I mean two things are in focus when it talks about the power of God. The gospel and Christ. Now think about that. Is the power of God shown in a mighty volcano blowing up? Or the sun's heat, the billions of stars, creation itself? Yes, but it's never referred to as the power of God. When he wants to make a point and says, this is what the power of God is. This is the most powerful. It's Christ himself and it's the gospel. The power of God. See, it comes from God. That's the point. It comes from God. This righteousness, I can't produce on my own. Now, when we come to this point in the message, and I've given you the gospel some would maybe would say this and let me just spend about another 10 minutes they would say well yeah i've already heard this i mean the gospel is good for unbelievers but give me something deep give me something meaty again i want to drive you deep deeper into the gospel of calvary just like we've saying I want to drive. I want to say, okay, wait a second, let's take the gospel now and how does it not only transform an unbeliever and brings them to Christ, but what can the gospel do in your life as a believer? I like what uh, C.J. Mahaney said. He said, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. Rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. In other words, the gospel is like that multifaceted diamond. You look at the diamond and you see different aspects of that, that gem. But the point is is everything that you learn about somehow goes back to the gospel. See, the gospel tells you about yourself. The gospel tells you about the world. The gospel tells you about God. It explains, right? Because a holy God could not accept sinful believers. He sent His glorious Son so that we might be saved, so it would be His righteousness and not ours. I mean, that's all found within the gospel. That's what we've been talking about. But all the different aspects of what we teach in the Bible all goes back to the gospel. Let me give you a few things. At the very end of your outline, I gave you some, and it's not—it's it's totally just blank. It just has little asterisks or whatever, little directional markers. Let me give you some things that the gospel does. This is why um, Jerry Bridges says we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to think about what Christ has done for us every day and be driven deeper into that. Number one, the gospel humbles me. So that as a believer, I can face my sin. That's what the gospel does. By the way, we feel guilty over our daily sins because we are guilty. (laughs) That's why we feel guilty. We are. Our natural gut reaction would be to be self protective and not acknowledge our sin or our guilt. That's really what we want to run. Even as believers, I believe we want to run. But see, the gospel comes in and says, no, it wasn't your righteousness that made you stand before uh, God righteous in the first place. It's the righteousness of Christ that you're standing in. So what does that do? That gives me not a half-hearted look at my sin. It gives me a wholehearted. It, it allows me to be defenseless, as it were. To admit. What do you mean to admit? To admit your sin. See, if, as, as we grow deeper into the gospel, you're, you, it is more easily to admit our sin. It's easier for us to admit our sin. So if you're a person who is selfish, you can look at the gospel and you can say, you know what? Christ received me, saved me when I was selfish, and I've been growing, but I'm still selfish, and Christ st- still looks at me, or God still looks at me through Christ's righteousness. It gives me boldness to admit my sin. That's the point. That's why Paul was able to say, Oh, wretched man that I am. It allows us to face our sin. I think a lot of times we do not face our sin. I just know over my time, I've been, I thought about the times when God really hit me with my sin and said, this is you and I wanted to run from that. These are some of them. I am, I am a worrier and worry is idolatry, uh, idolatry and that is very sinful. Lord, I'm not really that bad. Lost, John. You lost. Ah, yes, Lord, I do. It took me a while. I remember when He said, "Pride." You are very proud, Ugh. and I ran from it for a few weeks. I really did. He kept coming back. He kept co- like you. You were the, the pride. You, you know, when God's speaking on something, like He keeps pointing it out, you know, say something. Oh, that's pride. Uh, didn't thinking. Oh, that's proud. You know, and He just kept pointing out, and I kept wanting to run. if if you know the gospel and really understand the gospel, I don't have to run anymore. God accepted me when I was a sinner. I'm still a sinner, but made righteous through the righteousness of Christ. See, what do you struggle with? Maybe lack of love. And you run from it. And God's not growing you much during this time because you're not even admitting that's what you are. Or maybe you're selfish or stubborn or ungrateful or covetous. Maybe you're impatient and you just say, well, that's my nationality. Jealous. Jealousy and envy. Someone has something good happen to them and immediately there's like a gut reaction. Oh, why didn't it happen to me? Why? I wish it would be taken away from them. Critical spirit. Lazy. Those are sinful, right? And we could just go on and on and on. The idea is this. The gospel humbles me so that as a believer I can face my sin. Number two, the gospel motivates and energizes me to deal with my sin. We cannot begin to deal with the activity of sin in our lives until we have first dealt with its guilt. Again, the gospel assures me that God is on my side. You don't have to turn there, but in Romans 8, remember when he talks about that we have been foreknown, predestined, we've been called we've been justified we've been glorified that whole just before that he says all things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus to those who love him so we he he loves us and all things work together for good because of the whole process everything from knowledge for knowledge all the way to glorification but then the next verse which is verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's face it, if He started the entire process and ends with glorification, He is for us. Now, if you know that God is for you, I can be grateful for grace, and I can look at my sin and not run from it, because I know that God is for me. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand that a lot of people do not acknowledge their sin? They'll, oh, they'll say they sin and, but they, it's hard for them to say, that's, that's really who I am right now. I'm really struggling in this area. This is, this is how God needs to deal with me. See, it motivates and energizes me to deal with my sin. Number three, through the gospel, we acquire freedom from sin's power. One man said this, As long as I am stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself recommitting the very sins about which I most feel most guilty. The devil is well aware of this fact. He knows that if, if he can keep me tormented, now catch this, tormented by my sin's guilt, he can dominate me with sin's power. There was a time in my life when I was sinning in a certain way and I was so overwhelmed by just, oh Lord, I want to. Oh, I see this overcome. But because of the guilt, I kept going back. It was like the chain. The gospel breaks the chain and says, well, you're accepting the beloved. You don't have to sin. And even if you do sin, God still loves you the exact same. Remember here. Four, the gospel convinces me to rest in Christ's righteousness. It encourages me to rest in not in my righteous standing with God, a standing, but but the standing of Christ Himself has accomplished for me. By the way, when when you can rest in Christ's righteousness, then you can enjoy God. Some of us don't enjoy God. We're really on that performance treadmill. Oh yes, I'm saved by grace, but now I have to prove to God and I have to... No, it's all Christ. There isn't anything that's acceptable to you unless it's in Christ. We're freed. I can now put my energies into enjoying God and pursuing holiness and serving others because I'm free. The gospel also reminds me that my righteous standing with God always holds firm regardless of my performance because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus Christ and not mine. Which means this, on my worst day of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace towards me. But let's save my best day. On my best days of victory and usefulness, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, not mine. Do you see how that works? Some of us maybe can get very proud. We're really doing well. From our perspective, God knows the heart. The gospel keeps us humble, keeps us useful, keeps keeps us enjoying God, keeps us off the performance treadmill. Let me give you a recommendation. Some of this last part I got from this book. How many of you ever heard of the Gospel Primer? Excellent. You know who he was? A seminary grad from Masters College who was in the ministry for about 10 years and yet was trying to constantly please God on his own strength. He came to an end of himself, and he just said, and he started looking, and he said, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Now, this is a pastor who's walking with God, but said, there's got to be more. I'm on this performance thing. I, I keep wanting to please God, but feel like I'm not really pleasing him. It happened in 2002 where he started to realize, no, it's the gospel. And what he did is he actually just started taking note cards and saying, okay, the gospel produces this in my life. Some of that, what I just shared is in this. This is what it produces. He was starting to write these on three by five cards, carrying around, and throughout the day, yes, I stand righteous before God because of Christ, not by my own. I, I love because of Christ. Power of sin is, is, is overcome in my life because of the, uh, the righteousness of Christ. His life was opened up. This is what he writes at the very end of the book. And this is after going through the first part and looking at Romans 5 and Romans 6 and really starting to, you know, the gospel, really the implications of the gospel became, uh, rooted in his life. I want you to understand, he was a believer. It was, he wasn't seeing the implications of the gospel growing deeper into the cross. That was what was not happening. But as this process went on, he said this, but now I realize that absolutely 100% of the wrath I deserve for my sins was spent was truly spent on Jesus, and there is none of God's anger left over for me to bear, even when I fail God as a Christian. Hence, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always seeking to work all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. All of these realities hold true even when I sin. Can you imagine a tormented soul that's a Christian that starts to really realize, yeah, even my worst days, his love is consistent. He goes on, being justified in Christ doesn't mean that God no longer sees or cares about my sin. He does see. He is grieved by my sin. But his gracious favor upon me remains utterly unchanged by my sin. And no wrath is awakened in him against me. you got to get this. I, I used to think his wrath was awakened. That's what I would call chastisement. But really that's not true because Christ already bore all that wrath. In fact, God favors me so much when I sin that He favors me so much even when I sin that He sends chastisement into my life. He does so because He is for me, He loves me, and He disciplines me for my ultimate good. That's why He does it. Well, yeah, that's exactly what Hebrews says. Like a father, but for some reason I left out the father part. You see how much Christ, or God loves you, how much Christ loves you. I, I just hope that you grab a hold of that. He loves you so much that even while you're yet sinners, Christ died for you, right? And we need to stand in Christ's righteousness. By the way, if you understand Christ's righteousness, you're not going to have this attitude. Well, if I you know, if I'm righteous before Christ, before God, and I'm securing God and His love, well, I'm going to just do as I please. That's not how you respond to love. How do you respond to love? Obedience. By the way, if you love me, what does he say? You obey me. If you really love me, if you really understand all that I've done for you, Christ says, you obey me. Because when you really love me, you're going to be pushed to obey. Why? Because not out of a heart that fears, not out of a heart that says God's wrath is going to be upon me. No, because you know that that's not true. That when I received Jesus Christ back in 75, I, I was going to have a long path of growth. And I wasn't understanding all the things that I was going to, the sins that were going to be revealed in my life after I came to Christ. But through that whole time, He has walked with me and loved me consistently from the point that I said, Lord, I want you as my Savior and Lord. Right? And that's the same with you. We need to, we need to be driven deep into the glories of Calvary because it's there we find release from sin. It's there that our lives are transformed. It is there that our love for God increases and our love for each other uh, abounds. It's all found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing to him right now. getting ready I'd like